All right. Welcome back to My Little Tony's 1969. We're finishing you. Yes. This is just such a behemoth year. Yeah, it was very intimidating to tackle it. I feel like we've sort of gotten a handle on it. But, um, you know, coming out of our long break, it was definitely like jumping right back into the fire. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like we were made some rationale for doing such a light first episode. But I feel like it was mostly to like psych ourselves up to really tackle the whole thing. (sighs) Yeah. All right. So I guess we better just uh, get into it. No need to prolong it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. The big musical this year, which we sort of talked around last time, no arguments about it, um, even though it did not do very well at the Tonys, was Hair, the American Tribal Love Rock musical, which opened on April 29th, 1968, closed July 1st, 1972, after 1,750 performances, booked by, did you, do you remember how to pronounce, is it Jerome Rainey? That I'm not sure about. That's I'm going to go with that. I'm going to say it's R-A-G-N-I. I think it's probably Rainey. I mean, I'm assuming that's Italian. I'm going to say Rainey. <laughs> Jerome Rainey and James Rado. Book and lyrics by Jerome Rainey and James Rado. Um, music by Galt McDermott. Directed by Tom O'Horgan. And dance director Julie Arenal. Or Arenal. <laughs> Everyone's got a tough name. (laughs) They can't all be Galt McDermott. Hair, the American tribal love rock musical, follows a young group of hippies fighting the establishment, dodging the drafts, getting high, living and loving in New York City. It's 1967. The Vietnam War is raging and the age of Aquarius is dawning. Claude, his best friend Berger, their roommate Sheila, and their tribe of friends struggle to balance the demands of the harsh and violent world with their dream for a more beautiful and peaceful world. When Claude receives his draft notice, he must decide whether to join his friends in resisting the draft or bow to the pressure of society and his conservative parents, thereby sacrificing his ideals and possibly his life. I feel like that gives it more of a plot than it really, that's sort of like the, the maximum plot that it has. And it sort of got less of a plot as it sort of went through its development. And it was nominated for Best Musical and Best Direction of a Musical and did not win either one. So yeah, this was really like the the brainchild of Jerome Rainey and James Rado, um, and they sort of started working on it in 1964 and were kind of developing it. And then they kind of hooked up with Galt McDermott, who was the composer in 1966, and they had like written all of these lyrics um, already, and he put them to music, which I think you can sort of tell in some of the songs that it was like lyrics first. But mm-hmm. I think, uh, you know, they did a pretty good job of making them seem sort of seamless. Yeah, it's sort of an interesting way of going about it because like you mentioned, um, Jerome and James had been working together for a few years before Galt McDermott kind of got thrown into the mix. Um, And they had met doing like some sort of kooky off-Broadway review about like capital punishment. (laughs) And I think that the genesis of Hair is that, you know, they've been working together, they've been sharing writing, they're starting on this process and they're you know, at the Whitney Museum, and they're looking at this Jim Dine painting, and they're both kind of like, hmm? And they look at the title, and it's called Hair, and they're like, ooh, what a strange, exciting title. And it's kind of funny, because I think that hearing various people's stories of it along the way, like, everyone kind of is like, Hair, like, what could it be about? What a title. I wasn't sure when I'm going to bring this up, but it feels like the right time to bring it up early. I think we have a My Little Tony scoop on our hands. <laughs> it's not necessarily a secret, but I never saw anybody else sort of putting it together or discussing it. But 
Jerome and James lied about their ages in the original hair press cycle. They shaved like seven or eight years off of their ages. They like truly pulled off a like, how do you do fellow kids, especially since (laughs) they were in the show. So I have the receipts. (laughs) Let me break it down. So when you look on Wikipedia, it has both of their birth dates listed in the 1930s. So I was always kind of like, oh, it's sort of interesting that these like 30 something guys were writing this show about youth culture. But I guess everyone was kind of like, whatever about it. But in an article from 1969, which was talking about, ironically, talking about their bad behavior in the show and how, like, the producers basically fired them and banned them from the theater because they were, like, you know, improvising too much. It listed Rado as 29 years old and Rainey as 26 years old. And I was like, wait, that math doesn't add up because in 1969 they would have been 37 and 34. But then I was like, all right, maybe, you know, Wikipedia has the wrong birth dates, whatever. But Jerome Rainey died in 1991, and in his New York Times obituary, it said that he died at 48, which would have been confirming the younger age. But in his papers at the New York Public Library, they list the 1935 birth date, and they say that his papers start when he was in high school in 1952, which I think confirms that he was older. And then for Rado, there was an article in 2012 confirming that he was celebrating his 80th birthday. So those, I think, there's sort of no question that they were both born in the 1930s, which kind of seems like a scandal to me. Like, yeah. I don't, am I like, I don't know if I'm making too big of a deal out of this, but like, even in, like, to literally have your official obituary have your fake age, and it sort of offhandedly mentioned, like, oh, hair, they wrote it when they were both in their 20s. Like, it seems like it's such, it's so built into the mythology of the show. It feels like some of the authenticity is taken away by it being like, oh, actually, and like, the rest of the cast was all like 21 to 25. You mentioned this, and then I saw a picture of them that was printed in the Times, and I was like, there is no way that these people are under the age of 30. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like, they both had long hair, which I think was like doing a lot of the work for them, but I would really like a deeper dive into like who knew how did they make this decision like when did James Rado decide to be like I'm gonna you know sort of give up this lie but um yeah so that's kind of crazy it's funny though because like I feel like both of them had kind of just been like bopping around sort of the downtown slash college theater circuits so I just feel like it's this type of thing especially in this time and period where I think people are just kind of like moving in and out of circles and like it's kind of easy because like no one's there isn't like such a permanent set that like no one is really being like oh you've been hanging around the East Village for eight years exactly there's a lot of kind of obfuscation of like their past and like what they did and what year and I don't know I, I guess it kind of makes sense but I've always sort of thought of hair as like the opposite side of the coin to company in terms of like depicting sort of what was going on at the time and like the two of them or all three of them really are contemporaries of Sondheim so it's kind of interesting seeing like where their heads were at versus where his head was. There's just such a marked difference between them and Sondheim even just like where they kind of get their cues from like imagining Sondheim like listening to like (laughs) rock and roll just (laughs) to this day seems a little hard to even imagine. Especially since he's always been extremely like apolitical in his work. I think that's something that I've 
been trying to keep in check while I do this is that I think that because of, especially in the past few years, the proliferation of Manson family <laughs> content, I think that there have just been so many like portrayals of the dark side of the yeah. summer of love um, in recent media that I think even just kind of digging deep and like, like they <laughs> lied to the, their fellow hippies. Well, I don't, who knows if they lied to their hippie, the fellow hippies. Maybe they just lied to the, you know, the audience and the press. There's one like scholarly book about the creation of hair that we were not able to get our hands on that I believe was written by a woman in the original cast. So I don't know if she goes into it, but I haven't seen any kind of acknowledgement of this. But in this A Theater Will Rock, A History of the Rock musical, they do use the original birth dates, but there's no mention of any... They're 1930s birth dates? They're 30s birth dates. So... Yeah, so this had a lot of roots in experimental theater in sort of the way that they created it. So this guy named Scott Miller did an interesting analysis of it that I thought did a lot of good sort of grounding it in the time and place. In addition to the social influences of the 60s, hair also came from New York's experimental theater movement. In the late 60s, this movement had been going on for quite some time. The theater works created during this time were based heavily on improvisation, on group creation, on ritual, on exploring new ways to communicate with an audience and new ways to involve an audience directly in the act of performance. The creation process, often done in extended workshops, was as important, or in some cases more important, than the actual presentation of the work. They rejected the conventional norms of director, playwright, script, rehearsal, and character. And then they sort of talk about ritual like the way the opening number is sort of a ritual kind of calling together of the cast. And also um, the use of words, the way so many of the songs have these kind of like seemingly random like lists of words is and just sort of using (laughs) them just for like more about the sounds than the meaning um, is also sort of rooted in experimental theater. Yeah. And I think that that, you know, in every sort of person who had some sort of directing account of it, um, because it did kind of go through different directors as it went from off-Broadway to Broadway. They were basically just like taking an exacto knife and being like, oh, move that over here, move that here. Like, this makes sense here. Like, we'll write a little setup for this now. Like, I think so much of it is, it's kind of like a Mr. Potato Head of a (laughs) (laughs) musical where you can kind of, you know, you have all these parts that can work in different ways. And it also like, even though it is very like of the moment, experimental it also kind of has like a vaudeville throwback vibe in the way that it is kind of these like loosely connected songs and scenes and there's like a lot of pastiche in there you know it sort of pulls in this kind of uh, historical broadway review format as well and i think that that is worth noting too because like at this point our conception of like what off broadway means and like off off broadway like hasn't really been fully developed i think that this was sort of like the first mainstream crack um and like public viewing of like what was kind of going on downtown be kind of being brought Mm -hmm. uptown and i think that it is interesting that this was the first show that opened the space that we now know as like the public theater you know it kind of is the perfect summation of all these sorts of like downtown happenings and theatrical experiences that in a lot of ways like you were saying do kind of pay homage to vaudeville and uh views and earlier sorts of art forms. Yeah, and it was, uh, you know, going back to sort of the off-Broadway discussion, 
this was, I think, one of the very first off-Broadway to Broadway transfers, but it made a very funny um, pit stop in the middle where it played at the Cheetah Discotheque in Midtown Manhattan. I think this is James Rado remembering. We liked the idea. It would get us geographically closer to Broadway. This was a direct transfer of the public theater production, except that it had to start at an unorthodox curtain time of 7.30 p.m., and it had to play without an intermission straight through so the disco dancing could begin at 10. So yeah, so then after it played the Cheetah, um, it went through a big rewrite. Um, They cut some songs, they rewrote the book, they added 13 new songs. I guess my question I have is like where that instinct kind of came from. Because, you know, I think that Jerome and James had always seen it going to Broadway. And it kind of got this like six week run at the public. And then Michael Butler, who is this like rich Chicago guy, saw the poster from the public, which had Native Americans on it. And he was like, oh, cool like this is a play about Native Americans and then it totally just wasn't and he was kind of the person who was a driving force to getting it to the cheetah and it you know it didn't really change at all from that public theater version to the cheetah version but then Jerome and James were the ones who like wanted to add all the new songs and stuff and at first uh, Michael Butler who you know was the money bags of it was not interested in the changes but like overnight he kind of changed his tune and got into it um so yeah i guess it's kind of you know they kind of just like seem like unpredictable crazy guys (laughs) and mike michael butler the producer was also a young guy and he got his own his own profile for being uh you know sort of the hot young upstart I, I guess he was 41 and he had like his family was like wealthy industrialists or something and he was like I'm gonna use my money to fund this crazy hippie musical but I mean all of the changes that they made seemed to be for the better and it got you know very very positive reviews but I thought it was funny like how often the critics called it likable Likeable and charming were like words that were, you know, like it wasn't really seen as this like edgy, dangerous show. It was like, oh, it's like these cute little, these cute kids are doing (laughs) their little, putting on their little play. I think this is from the Clive Barnes Review. What is so likable about Hair, that tribal rock musical that last night completed its trek from downtown via discotheque and landed positively panting with love and smelling of sweat and flowers at the Biltmore Theater? I think it is simply that it is so likable, so new, so fresh, and so unassuming, even in its pretensions. Yeah, no, I think that that is an interesting point, too, because I think that so many people like had this idea of what hair was and it was like very different from what it actually is where I think people had this idea that it was like this scary like dark twisted (laughs) hedonistic show but you know at the end of the day I think that that maybe is like closer to what it is yeah I mean I think most of like the publicity like the scandal around it was surrounding the nude scene which was very highly publicized but like even by the time it came to Broadway By the end of the 60s, it was playing simultaneously in nine U.S. cities, and it was also playing in Australia, Mexico, which had the actors deported, by the way. Oh, my God. (laughs) Paris, Toronto, London, and Germany. And then by 1972, it was in 22 different countries and in 14 languages. So this was like a huge international sensation. So it wasn't exactly like, based on all the articles that were coming up about people freaking out, it was like a hundred percent about the nudity not necessarily about the other content and it is interesting because i think that you do make a good point that like the new york there wasn't like much pushback against it in new york but like i guess like these productions that were touring or opening in smaller cities around america that's when there were um you know the multiple sort of like 
court cases trying to like shut hair down i know the boston one went to the supreme court the boston one and then also one in tennessee also it went to the supreme court twice and in both cases it prevailed and also i think like by the end of the seven or by the end of the 60s it was sort of seen as passe like hippie culture had sort of come and gone Mm -hmm. and there was actually an interesting article from a reviewer who like went he saw it for the first time in 1970 like you know sort of during the original run and he wrote but none of my foreknowledge really prepared me for the ambivalence of my response to this theatrical prodigy with which left me dearly wishing that I had seen it earlier say during the lamented 1967 summer of love that gave birth to it for astonishingly enough the three years of history that have changed me along with everyone else have also left a perceptible patina of age on hair a patina which no amount of newly minted anti-Nixon and Agnew jokes can dissipate, inspiring some glum thoughts. As theater, hair is plainly as sensational as ever. The unexpected trouble with it is, so to speak, at its roots. What was surely devastating about hair in its infancy was the raw topicality of its depredations, anti-Vietnam War, anti-racist, anti-normality, combined with the earnest sincerity of its affirmations, peace, love, sexual liberty. It was a musical not so much about the manic mood of radical American youth as a musical of it, a sort of mass theatrical self-portrait which authors Jerome Rainey and James Rado did not so much as create as receive and transmit. It was America's first relevant musical. Unfortunately, relevance as a style is treacherous. It does not age gracefully, but rather passes from youth to senility without intermission. Watching the vividly real, passionate young folks of hair today, one is repeatedly shocked by the rusty creak of allusions to be-ins, by the quaint ritual strewing of daisies, by the sanguine vision of easy interracial harmony, and by innumerable other instant relics of an already doddering sensibility. Clearly, none of this stuff should matter in the least. The spirit should be in the thing. And it is, mostly. But the day is obviously coming when the producers of hair will be hard put to come up with authentically hip young actors, and everything depends in this play on the authenticity of the actors, who can mouth its lines and lyrics without wincing inside. Remember, this was written in 1970. (laughs) That's crazy. And I think it it was very sort of prescient with how hair has continued to age but like I think it really speaks to sort of the immediacy and specificity of the moment that it came up with came up in that passed like so quickly but I do think that like in a lot of ways like American popular culture has moved like the hippies like chronologically onto the 70s and it is like this weird sort of like surprising thing that I think that that totally makes sense what he's saying makes sense within its historic context but I do think that in a way like I feel like this like whole flower power like hippiness is kind of been transported to the 70s in some capacity yeah I mean I think it didn't like totally you know die immediately but I I think it is kind of like like I think there was already a like a cynicism that was sort of overshadowing kind of the optimism of like the hippie Mm -hmm. social movement you know even that early and I think like even by the time the movie comes out in 1979 it like it feels totally yeah that's way too late for a movie (laughs) yeah and like the interesting thing about the movie I mean, if we want to get into that, because I watched it for the first time and I have a lot of thoughts, Mm -hmm. but like the creators famously really hated the movie and were basically just like, I don't know her, but they like, (laughs) the weirdest thing about it is they really changed, they like took out all of the politics and made it seem like the hippies were just kind of like these weird, freaky little people who just like to, you know, just like sex and drugs. And there was sort of no um, like political ideology behind it. 
um, which I think they had the biggest was what they had the biggest problem with. I thought it was interesting. Like I think in our Rent episode, we talked a lot about the parallels between Hair and Rent. But in the Hair movie, they have a scene where Burger is like dancing on the table at the Stuffy Society party, which is absolutely like Lobby Bohem's <laughs> you know precursor. I think this is like a nice kind of summing up of like its politics from our musicals ourselves. And it kind of links it back to 1776, which I think is sort of an interesting thing. Like, I think that in some ways it's funny because on the surface, it's like hair seems like the obvious radical show of this season when in fact it's already like, you know, I think that both 1776 and hair are meeting each other kind of in the middle here. Um, so once audiences got past their shock at the show's graphically obscene language, simulated sex, graphically obscene in quotation marks language, <laughs> simulated sex and brief, brief nudity, the values they saw in hair were in the main socially responsible ones, save for the open acceptance of drugs and what spectators probably called promiscuity or free love. One charge popularly leveled at hair is that it is unpatriotic. But in fact, hair, like 1776, separates its criticisms from its affirmations. There is nothing in the song, script, or staging that indicates the kids are un- or anti-American, collectively or individually. Rather, they are saddened by much of what America has become, material values replacing moral values, for example. And they pledge for a return to those values, beneficial both to society at large and to the dignity of each individual. Scarcely a major public issue goes unremarked either in one of Hare's numerous songs or in the dialogue. Pollution in the environment, poverty, civil rights and race relations, peace in anti-Vietnam protest in the long second act sequence collectively called the war, and patriotism itself. Hostile critics of the show saw flag burning, but it simply wasn't there. Don't put it down expressly if quirkily shows how the tribe is crazy for the red, white, and blue, and accordingly the U.S. of A., Far from burning the flag, towards the end of the song, the tribe's leader, Berger, Wolf, and Steve, fold it with as much military precision, ceremony, and respect as the color guard at Arlington National Cemetery. Well, speaking of the treatment of the flag, we had another (laughs) update in uh, What Do Astronauts Think of Broadway, where um, a group of astronauts walked out because they thought that they were treating the flag disrespectfully, (laughs) (laughs) which is sort of like a funny through line that I had never really thought about before doing this podcast is like when the astronauts come to town, what are they going to (laughs) see? No, that's very, very funny um, and very relevant for the moment. But yeah, I think that like realizing that there isn't like one hippie mindset, it's like what, you know, whose politics are these and like, where do they come from? And do they like make any sort of coherent sense, um, (laughs) you know, outside of the musical and besides being kind of general, you know, value, youth values of the time? Well, you know, what I thought was interesting is that even Galt McDermott in the 90s said, hair isn't really a political show. It's about kids having fun and making fun of things. So at least a third of the creative team was not really convinced that it had like serious political uh, things to say. Yeah, no. And I think that's actually very like astute and like very true and I think that that kind of like spirit is really like captured in or it, later on we see it in something like lovey bohem or like in the bitch of living and spring awakening <laughs> it's funny because I feel like the 2009 revival you know as a veteran of the of teen Broadway stand culture in the late 2000s the 2009 hair revival was where all the spring awakening fans went after it closed I mean it makes it makes sense yeah I mean and that's the one thing that I will say like 
I haven't seen the show live, so I don't know how I would feel. But listening through the cast recording, it's like amazing. It's like it's hit so after good. hit after hit. In this, like his, this, the theater will rock a history of the rock musical. Um, the author, Elizabeth Woolman, um, kind of like sets up like Bye Bye Birdie as like one of the first instances where rock music was sort of in a Broadway show, even though it was a parody of you know, that specific era of rock. But Mm -hmm. what I think is so interesting and what she um, remarks upon, Hare reflects the fact that rock music had matured significantly, both musically and lyrically, in its first decade of existence. A rich array of maturing popular American musical styles are interwoven in the musical score. From the funky, soul-infused Aquarius... To the Motown inspired black boys, white boys. To the free form jam of walking in space. To the psychedelia tinge Donna and be in. Have you seen my 16 year old tattooed woman? Heard a story. She got busted for her beauty. Oh, 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 oh. Oh, oh, oh. Donna looking for Donna? Time there was a 16 year old virgin. Oh, Donna. Oh, oh, Donna. Oh, oh, oh. Looking for my Donna. McDermott's use of a variety of styles distinguishes his score from previous composers' attempts at bringing rock music to the Broadway stage by simply featuring recurring bass lines or repetitive lyrics that parodied rock and roll. And then um, she kind of sums it up. What is most striking about McDermott's score is how evenly most of the numbers blend forms that are common to Pin Pan Alley with the straightforward harmonic language and electrified instrumentation of rock. Most of the songs in the score are structured in 32-bar form, which has been a mainstay on Broadway for decades. So it is interesting to kind of see, one, how this compared to anything, you know, as the first Broadway rock, as the first rock musical, it's really um, giving you a nice sampler of rock. But like, you know, like we were saying with the vaudeville aspects too, like there are still these reason like the reasons why it is working in a theatrical space is that you know it does have some of these conventions still I mean I was like I don't even know how I got it I think I stole it from my mom like when I was in (laughs) middle school but I was absolutely obsessed with the hair cast album when I was like a tween and it was crazy like I hadn't listened to it in a long time and just going back and listening to it all of these like every single lyric is still just like ingrained in my brain even just like the songs where they're just like listing random shit it's like (laughs) it's all in there 
it's so good. Like it's so it's really raw and very like like alive. It's it's a really great recording. And like, you know, they have them cracking, they have them like messing up. Like it has all of, you know, your favorite 60s cast album uh quirks in there. No, totally. And you know, it feels very much like listening to a Janis Joplin recording <laughs> or like a, you know, something recorded of the era. Well, apparently Janis Joplin loved it and showed up multiple times with different groups of her friends and they were like jamming in the front row. Hell yeah. Which I which I love. <laughs> Yeah, I think at the end of the day, it's like not taking it too seriously is what is kind of the key to it. And I think that too, like, I think that like hippie culture and like classic rock, like Led Zeppelin culture kind of have been like historically like packaged together where I do feel like something like Led Zeppelin is so much more serious on the outside and like um, superficially. Um, But I think that this is like about jamming and having fun. And something, maybe this is taking it sort of down a dark road, but this was something I was thinking about because I remember in our Pippin episode, because Ben Vereen, I don't think he was in the original cast, but I think he was a replacement. I think he actually replaced one of the, like either James or Jerome. Well, anyway, all of their talk about sort of this communal vibe and like doing all these trust exercises, I was sort of thinking about how when he got, when he had his Me Too reckoning, it was from directing a production of Hair where he was like part of his apology, you know, his quote unquote apology for creating sort of this unsafe, like sexual harassment work environment was him being like, oh, I was just trying to recreate the vibe and sort of the attitude of the original production, which is sort of like, you know, it makes me think of like the bossy stories of like how much of that environment actually was all of like peace and love and fun and how much of it was sort of like kind of a predatory sort of like you know what I mean yeah no (laughs) 100% I think that like not to use this as like the hot button word that it has become because it is something important but I think that there's just a lack of consent with mm-hmm. hippie culture um in a way that is kind of scary um and doesn't uh prioritize people feeling okay with one you know like so many things like sexual things other people's nudity other people like being on drugs and you having to like interact with them I think that it's in some ways like not very utopian and like I do sound I feel like I sound like or feel conservative saying this but I'm like "Eh, like maybe this isn't it (laughs) no totally and I think like the problem is that if you're trying to have these like you know utopian ideals sort of like upsetting the status quo there's sort of no boundaries and no rules it really can only be successful if there's no like power hierarchy and obviously for something like the creation of a Broadway musical like you have you know the writers the producers the director and like you know complicated even further by the fact that the writers are like also performers so you know it it ends up being this like real there's this huge power imbalance between like the people who um, are in charge and the people who are like just trying to stay employed so it's like how much of this is actually like a culture that everyone is like enjoying and um, sort of contributing to equally and how much of it is people just kind of like going along with it because they have to because like I feel like you know it becomes really clear um, you know with something like the Ben Vereen situation where like as soon as he is in power like he is abusing it as soon as he's sort of like on the other side of it. Yeah um, there's actually a passage from one of the original cast members that I feel like really hits the nail (laughs) hits the nail on the head Um, so 
and this is also from the uh, rock musical history book. Once the cast had been chosen, the creative staff watched the performers to make sure that they were bonding properly and made adjustments when bonding did not occur. Natalie Moscow remembers, we had two people, a boy and a girl, who were in rehearsals on the first two or three days and they were fired. And it was not because they were bad. It was just because they did not fit into the tribe. And I did not realize then, but obviously they had overcast and were planning to fire just to see who meshed. It was very interesting, though. Why did they keep me on instead of some someone else? I don't know. I do know that we did a lot of bonding ep- exercises and a lot of tribal stuff. So I feel like it's just like, you know, they're all kind of cast in the show. They're not really given scripts. They're like, you know, doing all these like crazy exercises that like really probably don't prioritize anyone's like personal spaces and like everyone's kind of like just being afraid to get fired for like trivial <laughs> reasons. Right. It's yeah. And like, I've also sort of wondered how that worked out with sort of like the racial button pushing that's in a lot of the show, because it's Mm -hmm. like, yes, it was like an incredibly integrated cast, but it's like all white writers. And like, I think, you know, the biggest sort of instance of this is the song Colored Spade, where the character is basically just singing this full song of racial slurs that I was always kind of like, well, how did that actor feel about like you know did he really feel like he had sort of a say or like any of the actors who've ever played that role like felt and I did find like a piece sort of like an offhanded piece in an article in an article where Lamont Washington who was the um the actor who played HUD was uncomfortable singing the song and like the cast was sort of nervous about it but obviously they didn't go into it because they were like whatever but yeah I mean I think and that's sort of like that's sort of the extent of a lot of the social critique is just like saying the most outrageous things you can imagine and just being like, oh, are you offended? <laughs> like, I, Which I think fits with sort of the tone of the thing, but is not necessarily like super um, pointed, I guess. Oh, it also is just like interesting to think about like how the people who were coming to see the show were responding to it. And I guess like we really can't totally know. And obviously it was a big hit. So like people were liking it. But I think that one interesting thing is that um, they did like a breakdown, an informal sampling of the of Harris patrons. And, you know, 7% were black of people coming to see it. And they were all under 30 years old. Um, but I do want to give it props for being one of the earliest shows to do true colorblind replacement casting, like Melba Moore, who started in, was she just on an ensemble member or was she just, she was maybe in a more minor role, but she mm-hmm. ended up being a replacement for Sheila, which is the main female role. Yeah. So, so she started as Dion, um, and then was a replacement Sheila. Um, and I guess, you know, Ben Breen. Um, and a little, I found a little list of people who got their start in various productions of Hair. Famously, Diane Keaton, Melba Moore, Donna Summer, Tim Curry, Nell Carter, Peter Gallagher, Joe Montaigne, Ben Vereen, Clifty Young, and Meatloaf. Oh my God. Some of those were I did not know about. Meatloaf I didn't, but... <laughs> so I found an interesting article from, from 1968... That was sort of comparing Hair and 2001 A Space Odyssey. And it was called <laughs> 2001 and Hair, Are They the Groove of the Future? Um, and Hair actually sort of has a prescient lyric in it in um, one of the songs. It's like, I fashion my future on films in space. So they knew. But I thought there was this interesting sort of analysis of what it means like of grooving. It's like a sort of a motivating force in art. 
The new theater insists that its audience relinquish their demand for traditional structure. A play is not a novel, it says. A play is a collage of dramatic effects which calls for grooving, not understanding. To groove means to yield yourself to the flow of activity around you. To be with it as a phonograph needle is with the record groove, responding to its microscopic impressions. Swinging with the sound. Groovin requires a lot of personal freedom and a lot of self-assurance. It is the antithesis of uptight perception in which one accepts only what he can comfortably categorize. Groovin consists of opening your senses to what is happening without anticipation or imposition of logical structures. The new art is often devoid of traditional dramatic tension, which depends upon sequential progression for its effect. Groovin also includes the ability to receive several clashing stimuli simultaneously. It is a form of perception dictated by the urban environment. There is no way to understand the city, but there are ways it can be experienced. This insight is now being transmitted to the dramatic arts. Just as you cannot focus for very long on any specific aspect of the midtown scene, so the new drama defies the viewer to focus on any specific segment of the action. Singers in the aisles compete with dialogue on stage, and both are enveloped in lighting effects which theatergoers struggling to understand will find distracting. The effect, like that of montage in films, is of sensory bombardment. It is intentional, not undisciplined. As a culture, we're not accustomed to grooving. We don't ask much of our art forms, and as a result, are poorly rewarded by them. We ask merely for correct attitudes and perhaps a little pragmatic philosophy when we should demand enriching experiences. Experiences which are self-justifying because they are part of the potential of being human and being alive. Hair is a celebration, not a story. It celebrates the human body, marijuana, love, and sex. For the first time on a Broadway stage, the human body is shown completely naked. That, too, is part of the collage we are asked to dig. The gesture is graceful and affecting. To ask what the scene means is to miss the point and to force drama back into the tired categories our best playwrights would like to overcome. There it is, people. The human body. Dig it. Oh my god, that's amazing. Right? And I also think that it's uh, definitely an antecedent to our current discussion on vibes as a culture. <laughs> exactly. Hair was like maybe the first vibe-based uh, <laughs> show, but um, done a little more successfully than something like American Idiot. It's also just so funny because it's like something like Godspell is like just it's so I feel like hair has really been a big missing piece in like so much of what we've been covering on the show Mm -hmm. Um, and it feels kind of like having like a missing piece to a puzzle in a lot of ways because I think it just really puts such like a wide range of things into context totally yeah I just want to talk a tiny little bit more about the movie which I thought was pretty bad but did have a couple of good things (laughs) in it number one you got Annie Golden being very cute you have Nell Carter and Charlene Woodard, two-thirds of an Amos Behaven reunion, doing White Boys. <laughs> white Boys are so sexy, 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 white boys. And lean, lean, love those straight on time. But obviously the highlight is Cheryl Barnes doing Easy to Be Hard. Especially people And she kind of has like an interesting backstory, not to get off on too much of a tangent, but she was like, she didn't have an agent. She was like working as a maid. She showed up to the audition and like blew everyone's mind. Um, She did the song in one take. 
And then later she and Milos Forman like became friends and she like went to Prague to like hang out with him while he was shooting Amadeus, which is like a very That's crazy. Yeah, it's very funny. And speaking of him, I feel like everyone is their um criticism is one of their major criticisms is that he was just like the wrong director for the He definitely was. And I also thought it was a very <laughs> strange choice, you know, not to knock on Twyla Tharp, but um it I thought her choreography, even though it was cool sort of in and of itself, it's, it felt very distracting and like out of place for this kind of piece to have like heavily choreographed modern dance moments. And uh, I mean, maybe now is the time to bring this up, but similar to the way that Christine Baranski was sort of like the secret uh, ingredient to the 1984 Tonys, Betty Buckley had a hand in, had sort of connections to almost all these shows where we talked about she was already in 1776. She has a secret voice cameo in the hair movie, even though she didn't get to be in the 1776 movie. She is the soloist in Walking in Space, like dubbing over um, a Vietnamese woman. My body is walking in space. My soul is in orbit with God. Then she originated the London productions of both Promises, Promises and Dear World, like 50 years apart. Oh, yeah. Well, that's funny because I didn't I forgot about the Dear World connection. Yeah. So Betty Buckley, good for you. (laughs) We sort of talked last time about how they were almost shut out of this Tony's. And there was a very rude article where the headline called the Tonys the Emmys. It said, hair wins delay on Emmy nominees. And this was in the print New York Times, but it was not about the Emmys. So the Tonys really gets no respect. So I think another thing, notable thing about this season is how we're sort of past the era of Broadway having impact on the charts. But we have two shows that had, you know, major multiple pop hits, which were this and Promises, Promises. So, I and I think the biggest hit, what was it? Was it like a Age of Aquarius slash Let the Sunshine In was one song, a medley of two songs? Yes, and I think it was like the Fifth Dimension who performed yes. it. Yes. My favorite pop, I don't know if you could even call it pop song hair cover, is the Nina Simone version of Ain't Got No slash I Got Life that she sort of reinterpreted and turned into um, kind of a civil rights song, which is a really amazing version of those songs. (laughs) 
Yeah, I really want to hear uh, B. Arthur's version of Black Boys. Black <laughs> are delicious. Baby chocolate-flavored love. Licorice lips like candy. Keep my cocoa handy. I have such a sweet tooth when it comes to love. So let's... Let's talk about the performance. Who who did the intro to it? They did a really good job. I it remember it was um, uh, Harry Belafonte. Yes, he did a very sort of poignant intro into it. This year, three men from our planet will go to the moon. The rest of us are going to have to make it down here with each other. In this period of the world's history, polarization of background and attitude is making communication between people more than usually difficult. The theater must take its responsibilities very seriously. Almost a last refuge must commit itself to being a center of hope where we can see the truth, where we can see what man is, where we can see what the glory of man is and what he aspires to be. Scientists deal in logic, and I have the faith that they will get some of us to the moon. But there is more than logic in the theater. The theater deals with passion and emotion. We live in emotional times. Artists are emotional people. So listen to them, friends. From the young soldier's plea in the revolutionary 1776, return now to America 200 years later. Michael Butler's equally revolutionary hair, and the impassioned plea of today's young people. And then after they were done, who was it? Was it Zero Moss still was like, that was great. <laughs> yes. I thought the hair was extraordinary, didn't you? But I must tell you, it reminds me of my son's room. But yeah, really amazing performance. And apparently, like, the behind-the-scenes info was that, like, they weren't even giving them a sound check. The Tony's producers were very sort of dismissive of them. Like, not even, like, a bunch of the cast didn't even bother to show up, um, which you can't tell because there's already, there's so many of them on stage. The backstory on... 3500 is... This is from that Scott Miller piece. Once Congress had given President Johnson the power to do pretty much anything he wanted in Vietnam, he decided to send in ground troops to secure air bases and begin a full-scale ground war, marking the official escalation of the war. On the morning of March 8th, 1965, 3,500 Marines, the first ground troops of the war, came ashore near the Da Nang Air Base, welcomed by Vietnamese girls and four American advisors holding a bedsheet proclaiming, Welcome to the Gallant Marines. But, interestingly enough, that may not be what the song 3500 in hair refers to. Jim Rado has said the song was inspired by an Allen Ginsberg poem, Ginsberg's Wichita Vortex Sutra, written in February 1966, contains almost all the freaky, violent, surrealistic images in the song 3500, often quoted word for word. General Maxwell Taylor proudly reports to the press that 3,500 of the enemy were killed in one month. He repeats the number digit by digit for effect. 
3500. In addition to the many other images from the poem that found their way into the song, Ginsberg also refers to 256 Viet Cong killed and 31 captured, which became 256 captured in the song lyric. Though the song starts out somber and intense, spilling out Ginsberg's images of death and dying, it turns midway into a manic dance number, an absurdist celebration of killing that echoes Maxwell's glee at reporting the enemy casualties, commenting on the happy face that the U.S. government tried to put on the ever-diminishing returns of war in Vietnam. While our soldiers and theirs kept dying, Washington tried to whip up World War II-style support for the war among Americans. But we had seen the war on our TV screens this time, and we weren't celebrating. that was a good sort of yeah no totally summation (laughs) yeah i love that whole sequence and i i think especially in this performance like it really communicates that like let the sunshine in kind of has like a bittersweet even just musically like the the harmonies in it are like very in a minor key and very sort of like haunting and sad yeah and it also feels like kind of i think a lot of like the chorus numbers feel kind of like chaotic in a way that I think, you know, even just seeing how like a big kind of show-stopping ensemble number from something like Promises Promises like has everyone sort of like singing like very distinct parts and like it's all very like calculated. This just like feels really raw in a way that um, I don't think that you're really used to hearing on Broadway. Yeah, it's very, it's really incredible. Oh, and maybe this goes without saying, but I guess we should mention that there's also a lot of Shakespeare in this section what a piece of work is man is directly from uh, hamlet also some counterpoint uh, of Romeo and Juliet later on Which is funny because the next show, or the reason why Hera kind of got kicked out of the public theater was because um, Joe Papp really wanted to direct this, like his like crazy version of Hamlet called The Naked Hamlet. (laughs) (laughs) Hera's already the naked Hamlet. Exactly. I mean, I think he's kind of smug about it. He's like, ah, so so what if we didn't like keep doing it? I think they got like 1% or 2% of the profits um, Mm -hmm. that like... Um, it made and it was still um, you know like millions of dollars so (laughs) 
right. Should we move on to Promises, Promises? Let's do it. Okay. We only talked about that for an hour. (laughs) (laughs) Promises, Promises opened on December 1st, 1968 and closed on January 1st, 1972 after 1,281 performances. Um, You got a book by Neil Simon, music by Burt Bacharach, and lyrics by Hal David. Um, It was directed by Robert Moore, choreographed by Michael Bennett, and it was based on the 1960 film The Apartment by Billy Wilder and I.A.L. Diamond. In a synopsis, based on the 1960 Oscar-winning film The Apartment, this musical comedy tells the story of Chuck Baxter, an ambitious employee of Consolidated Life Insurance Company on his way up. As a bachelor, Chuck has what some of his colleagues desire, an apartment for hanky-panky. While the promise of promotion is dangled before him, Chuck lends these senior executives his place for their extramarital trysts. But Chuck becomes more than a little conflicted when he learns that Fran Kublik, the object of his affection, is the mistress of his boss, the man who holds the key to both Chuck's flat and his future. This um, was nominated for a lot of Tonys. I believe it was eight. Um, and it won two. Best Performance by a Leading Actor in a Musical for Jerry Orbach. And uh, Best Performance by a Featured Actress in a Musical for Marion Mercer. Yeah, and that was also a uh, Tony-winning role in the revival. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like I was uh, trying to describe it to Tom. And I'm like, it's kind of just this like perfect little great musical comedy cameo where you just get like one good song you're kind of i think part of why it's brought to tony's is that i think it's just neil simon writing at his best totally so this this was the david merrick joint it had a pretty small section in his book he didn't do it i think you know he was getting tired of his old tricks by this point but um i think the biggest thing to note about I mean there are a few big things but something that I didn't necessarily know going in was that there was a lot of um behind the scenes technical innovation going on with the show mm-hmm. where um David Merrick was starting to embrace like automation and the stagehands the stagehands union was getting very nervous because there were like these machines that could do you know the job of like seven people and apparently the machines kept like quote unquote breaking down during previews so on opening night apparently he like grabbed the like the fire hatchet (laughs) and just like camped out by the machine like during the performance to be like nothing is going wrong at this performance that's so funny there's a really good and Donna McKechnie's uh, memoir during one preview the machines broke down and the set jolted forward knocking out one of the dancers graciela danielle it was a dangerous incident she could have been killed david merrick suspected sabotage and she goes on to describe what you um just (laughs) oh good i'm glad that that story is confirmed because i was like (laughs) that kind of seems fake but (laughs) we got two sources yeah, um, and apparently it was actually very cool, the movement of it. Like, the apartment would kind of, like, thrust out. And it's interesting to hear about Michael Bennett's choreography because, like, I think a lot of it was on his end. Like, he kind of had this attitude of we need to keep the show moving and, like, how do we kind of incorporate dance into the scenic changes? And it's right. cool to kind of match that with this sort of new technical innovation um, where, you know, the whole production is sort of working like a finely oiled machine yeah and i think that sort of is carried out through his work on dream girls michael bennett was like the only person in the kind of creative team who wasn't handpicked by neil simon like apparently as the story go 
knows is that David Merrick called up Neil Simon and he was like, how can I get you to do a musical? Like, what source material do you want? What songwriting team do you want? And what director do you want? And he was like, oh, I want to write a musical version of The Apartment and I want Burt Bacharach to do it. And I just saw this amazing play, The Boys in the Band. I want Robert Moore to be the director. And he even says that like the only person who he didn't choose was Michael Bennett, who in turn was the one of the most important um, creative forces working. So the Michael Bennett, the Ken ba- Mandelbaum, Michael Bennett book has like a few interesting things. Again, like I think this is kind of like a minor show in pretty much everybody's history, um, except Jerry Orbach, I guess. Walter Kerr wrote, and I think this was during the out of town tryout, he wrote, Michael Bennett's choreography knows just where to stop. Instead of beating you to death with book, the show catches its breath and plucks a dance step out of nowhere. Then, having investigated just how far hip and arms can be swung with a discreet, unhysterical, tight abandon, the dance cuts off like lights in an electrical storm, like a poem with a short last line. They talk about how like he choreographed all of the ensemble members to have sort of like specific stories and characters that they were kind of going through. But I think, you know, the big dance centerpiece is obviously turkey lurkey time which Mm -hmm. we um you know see at these tonys so harold wheeler who uh you know a name we're familiar with this was sort of his very early on in his career and he actually was he had been working with burt Bacharach for a while and then i think this was his first foray into broadway so he says michael said i want them to start applauding before the number is over so we built an ending with the dancers dancing dangerously on tabletops and with repetitions of steps and music and it was so infectious you had to applaud and everything michael and i did together in later years he would always say this number is going to be the turkey lurkey number of the show it was very special to him he even asked for that in vocals for jennifer holiday's big number in dream girls michael said the ending has to be like turkey lurkey remember how he made them applaud before it was over and they definitely, they, you know, they you hear it in the Tony performance. You get that applause moment. Apparently when they brought it to London. So Donna McKechnie's part is actually pretty minor in the whole show. But like even I think Robert Moore like talked about her being um, Michael Bennett's like secret I guess like secret weapon yeah so when they brought the show over to the UK Tony Roberts was playing the Jerry Orbach role and apparently like after turkey lurkey time there's like a you know really short scene um that closes the act and he she had to go they had to go back and like do the last like stanza of the um or the last like bit of the song um because people wouldn't stop applauding like (laughs) um, and she was like that's like apparently the first time it ever happened in the uk and like people were just like totally knocked off their block by it i mean it's pretty crazy that she was like the only person i believe who transferred to the london production and i and they also asked her to open it on tour too so they were like we need donna (laughs) and it's funny too because like i guess what you were saying about how he gave all the characters backstories like the backstory for this number he's like okay so the three of you are pretending to be betty grable and like (laughs) that was like their motivation which i guess meant something to them because this is like a really funny kind of bitchy thing that ethan morden talks about in his broadway babies book michael bennett started like Fosse and Champion as a dancer, first gaining prominence as a choreographer of Promises Promises, a highly contemporary show that seemed to sweep everything, cast, Wiley, Burt Bacharach, Cross Rhythms, Office Chrome, and West Side Walk-Up Clutter into a realistic valentine to who knew what. 
Somewhat later, after cast replacements and long run, blues slowed the show down. Only the dances held up. Bennett was on to something. It is kind of like a Valentine to who knows what. (laughs) And like, yeah, and I think that just even in Neil Simon's book, like he spends like two pages talking about it. I really think that like what is remembered um, is the Michael Bennett um, dancing. And the hits. I mean, I think, you know, you can take or leave the plot. I guess the hits are undeniable. <laughs> the hits are undeniable. Um, and another, before we get into the score, um, another sort of fun little anecdote from the David Merrick book that's kind of, you know, neither here nor there is that, um, so Donald Brooks did the costume design and, you know, it was a very contemporary show and he came back after a year and he was like, these costumes are already dated, like I'll redesign them for free. And David Merrick was like, no, because like if the skirts are longer, we're going to have to like re-choreograph the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, which I thought funny. was a funny detail. But yeah, so this was Burt Bacharach and Hal David's one and only foray into writing a Broadway score. Something I didn't realize is that another technical innovation was that they brought in the producer, Phil Ramone, who produced their albums to sort of produce the sound in the theater. And this was like before there was really like amplification happening. And he said... My concept, said Ramon, was to create a liveness about the theater without getting into Cinerama. The ideal balance, he felt, would be 50% live sound from stage and orchestra pit and 50% controlled sound from amplifiers. But it is no simple matter to turn a traditional orchestra pit and auditorium into a combined recording studio and stereo phonograph. And so there's sort of like this whole article detailing how he did that, which I thought was fascinating. Very And like they had, you know, the pit singers in there, mm-hmm. which was not something that really caught on, but I think really adds a little special something like in the overture. Totally. It's so it's so special, I think. And I think that kind of the secret behind that, Michael Bennett was like, it's great that we had those pit singers because so I could cast just dancers as the ensemble and I didn't have to <laughs> yeah. worry if they could sing or not. Um, and the big question on my mind has always been, why did they never write another Broadway show in this uh, this 1968 <laughs> interview or piece on Burt Bacharach? First of all, side note, he's 38. So again, same same age as the hair guys, secretly. Same age as the hair guys, same age as um, as Sondheim, same mm-hmm. age as all these guys. Except for a few patches of white hair, he looks at 38 like Joe College in a Burlington sock ad. Plaid pants, baggy green crew neck sweater, white socks, and white U.S. Keds. Mucking up the joint, throwing raw eggs and coffee ice cream into a blender, and talking about promises, promises. Somehow I lived through it, and I'm still alive. I didn't damage my health too much, although I had pneumonia in Boston and spent a week in the hospital. But this has been the hardest thing I've ever done. The work seemed endless. Since August, my partner Hal David and I have written songs, dropped songs. I've seen my wife six times in four months. I take too many pills. I don't sleep anymore. I close my eyes and music goes through my head all night. I'm wiped out by this show, man. Tomorrow we do the cast album and then it's all over and I'll be in Palm Springs by Wednesday. I have no desire to ever do another Broadway musical, no matter how successful Promises Promises is. And you know what? He didn't. Also, that's 
half of the story, Neil Simon says that he had pneumonia when they were out on the road and David Merrick was so rude to him and so mean to him and just like bullied him so much that that's part of also why he didn't do it. Yeah, I can't imagine being your your only Broadway experience being a David Merrick show. (laughs) Like apparently like for like three days, like they had added, um, they added I'm never going to fall in love again. And um, I guess how David had written the lyrics, but like... David Merrick was just like terrorizing Burt Bacharach to write the music and like finally like after like four days he just like wrote it in like three hours and was like okay I'm done like leave me alone <laughs> and you know they got they worked pneumonia into those lyrics oh yeah to- oh my god yeah totally <laughs> what do you get when you kiss a guy you get enough germs to catch pneumonia after you do he'll never phone you Never fall in love again. I'll never fall in love again. Speaking of I'll never fall in love again, I wish they had done that instead of She Likes Basketball on the Tonys because, like, of course you got to do Turkey Lurkey time, but, like, where the hell is Jill O'Hara? You know, you want to see... I, you know, that's one of my favorite songs. And, you know, you could have just gotten the two of them having their nice little moment, get the guitar out. What do you get when you fall in love? You only get lies and pain and sorrow. So for at least until tomorrow, I'll never fall in love again. I'll never fall in love again. You know, there's no videos of them doing it. I feel like that's so right i she likes basketball's such a i think within the context of the whole album it works but like i don't think it really captures the context of the show i also don't think it's a moment that really needed to be musicalized maybe that's a hot (laughs) take but that seems like a real one idea song And I get that it's like, you know, you want to showcase your leading man who's the front runner for the Tony, but he's got other good songs like, you know, give him half as big as life or whatever, which, by the way, is rhythmically insane. So many of these songs are like, who is able to sing these? I just took a peek, really peek to tell the truth through my eyes. I don't look so good to myself. Half as they're very difficult and jill o'hara this is really her big broadway show i guess like her first time first and only time originating a broadway role and i love her voice me too it's very like Wispy and beautiful. And speaking of the two of them, I just want to single out this section in the review. Maybe you can uh, follow along at home and compare the differences to the way the two of them are described. (laughs) The cast was virtually perfect. Mr. Orbach has the kind of wrists that look as though they are about to lose their hands and the kind of neck that seems to be on nodding acquaintanceship with his head. He makes gangle into a verb because that is just what he does. 
He gangles. He also sings most effectively, dances most occasionally, and acts with an engaging and perfectly controlled sense of desperation. Jill O'Hara, sweet, tender, and most innocently bettable, looks enchanting and sings like a slightly misty lark. So he's like, yeah, she's fuckable. (laughs) That's so rude. Another Jerry Orbach story is that apparently Neil Simon hated him when they went first went into rehearsals and he like was like bugging David Merrick about trying to replace him. And then once David Merrick uh, showed up, he like was perfect. And David Merrick was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, I don't know if there. I mean, I think sort of the thing that kind of gets talked about is how, you know, the two leads are not especially it's like a little bit hard to root for them. <laughs> I don't know. I think they make it work. Yeah. It's actually sort of an interesting um, or like a odd movie to musicalize. I mean, it does have like a darkness to it. Yeah, it's dark. But I do feel like it it seems like it lands. And I think that it's also sort of funny too, because I think that like people like to be like, oh, it was like a very innovative show. But I think that like what makes it so good is that like it is like very classic. It's very classic in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I think it's one of the last gasps of this kind of show. You know, speaking of kind of the pop crossover of this show, Dionne Warwick had been their muse for a long time and continued to be, and she had hits with several of the songs. And she released an album called Promises, Promises. Promises, promises, I'm up with promises, promises now. I don't know how I got the nerve to walk out if I shout, remember. rules and so i think that's also why they they sort of talk about how that's why a lot of their songs are really hard to sing is because they wrote them for her and she's just like effortlessly kind of you know dealing with all of these like timed signature changes and um everything but uh yeah she's a genius Oh, I feel like we needed to bring up Kelly Bishop. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so she's in... Uh, we, we have a lot of future Chorus Line members um, in this show. We have, you know, besides Donna, you have Bayark Lee as one of the, uh, you know, Turkey Lurkey featured dancers and um, Kelly Bishop, then known <laughs> as Carol Bishop. Um, and she had a funny quote in the uh, the Chorus Line book where she was like, that audition was seven fucking hours long. Like, I bet that's where he got the idea for a chorus line. And like, you know, I'm getting paid $150 a week and I have $5,000 worth of training. <laughs> like, very salty, but like, uh, you know, very Always on classic, brand. very classic her. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, you love to see it. Should we talk a little more about the performance? Because I I feel like we sort of talked around it. Yeah, I feel like I always knew about this performance, but I don't think I really knew that she like basketball was kind of tacked on to the the front of it. It's not necessary. I mean, I love Jerry Orbach and, you know, one of the classic Broadway leading men, but um, this this wasn't it. But um, yeah, Donna's amazing. Like, truly, like, she has no bones in her body. And, like, um, I know, you know, we sort of name drop Seth Rudetsky a lot, but his deconstruction of this performance is, like, very important. What I'm obsessed with in this video is that it's, like, the worst song in the world, yet the most brand at the same time. So, first of all, the song is called Turkey Lurkey. Now, it's crazy. So, this is the map. It's the 60s. 
Lyrics, it's Herculean time. Tom Turkey ran away, but he just came home. What? It makes no sense. You're like, what the fuck is happening? Also, like, I think that what is most important to me about it is I love that they're like, one, dancing on their desks, um, but two, like, so they're like dancing on these desks, but then the men start doing this like figure or everyone else, all the other company kind of like starts doing this like eight yes, around I them. Yes, I love the figure eight. And it's just like, I don't know why, but it fills me with like so much joy. Um, <laughs> it's so good. It's so and good. I love great use of the pit singers at the end with the one singer who's like hitting the high note, like the same as the trumpet. Okay. So I was good. one. Yeah. I was like, I feel like I've always wondered. I'm like, who's actually singing that? Yeah. It's the, I believe it's one of the pit singers. Cause I'm sure nobody else has any breath in their body to be yeah. doing that. I know that like you totally solve so many problems by having <laughs> Oh, also a pet peeve of mine is that mm-hmm. I feel like people always love to like be like, it's a Thanksgiving song, but it, it is, is a not Christmas a Thanksgiving song. song. <laughs> they say Christmas in it like 800 times. Although I think, you know, they're it's sort of creating its own problem because it's like who eats turkey at Christmas. Yeah. But, I think um, it used to be more common. It wouldn't be as good if it was like, it's hammy, ham time. Yeah, it's hammy <laughs> lammy time. <laughs> I mean, they get into, you know, loosey goosey time, which is even more like, I mean, I guess a Christmas goose, Christmas is, goose yeah. is more of a thing. But also I've sort of uh, accepted it peacefully that people will make it a Thanksgiving song because it's like, you know, yeah. never too much turkey lurkey time, in my opinion. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> we'll agree to disagree <laughs> um okay so i think that's that for that right the only other jill o'hara tippet um which i don't know if it actually makes sense to save for later but her sister also originated a role in the fig leaves are falling and also never went on to originate another broadway role so and i think her sister went on to replace her in the it, show oh really in promises promises oh yeah. that's very funny <laughs> Okay, so maybe let's do a little bit of Dear World. The also ran Dear World opened February 6, 1969, closed May 31st, 1969 after 45 previews and 132 performances. Music and lyrics by Jerry Herman, book by Jerome Lawrence and Robert E. Lee, direction and choreographed by Joe Layton, produced by Alexander Cohen, who was the Tony's producer. And it was based on The Mad Woman of Shio, is that how you say that? By Jean Giraudoux. I'll look it up later. Yeah. <laughs> um, synopsis is a deranged countess and her cronies scheme to stop businessmen from drilling for oil under the streets of their Parisian neighborhood. It's pretty, <laughs> that's, uh, you know, it's short and sweet, yeah. but it's about so much more. Um, and it was nominated for Best Performance by a Leading Actress in a Musical for Angela Lansbury and Best Scenic Design. And it won. Angela Lansbury won her second. Was it her second Tony? It was her second yes, Tony. Yeah. Her second Best Leading Actress Tony. 
That's funny. You, you never really dare believe that this moment is, is going to happen, so you're never really prepared. Oh, this is a glorious honor. And I'm deeply grateful for all of you who have given it to me. Thank you. So, yeah, this is a famous, you know, flop with a great score. And I think that, like, there are just so many problems with it. <laughs> and I think that, like, maybe, like, the first place to kind of start. I One thing I think I should maybe talk to you about off air, but I think that we should consider doing a Jerry Herman flops uh, special episode because... I would be down for that. Yeah, I feel like this is something that it's very curious to me. I feel like actually coming into this season, this was one of the scores that I knew the best, surprisingly, um, considering that there were so many big hits. But um, I've been a longtime fan of this cast recording. But I guess so I guess back to what I was about to say, I think that like the first kind of like funny sort of thing is that like the translation of Mad Woman is like, more about her being eccentric but i think that they kind of um in like a classic flop mistake like literally translated it to her being like kind of insane um, <laughs> which i think kind of just like starts um the problems i mean angela lansbury's book they don't talk about it too much but she was just coming off of like the humiliation of being passed over for the main movie and she had like just declined to do the show in london but she you know was obviously coming off of the huge success of mame and i think like one of the big problems early on was that like the main fans didn't want to see her be like so ugly and weird <laughs> they were <Yeah>. like where's <laughs> beautiful glamorous mame angela like they they didn't want that um and she yeah i mean she was like the reason people were coming to see it and there were like historic ticket prices and they kept raising the ticket prices and you know selling pre-sale tickets to a point where some people thought that they were being unethical because the show was so bad <laughs> that they were like are you really just like raising the price and raising the price on this like horrible show that you know from the start was troubled but i think that it just got worse and worse and i think that you know starting off with kind of listing like all the reasons you know i think that there are like two that like one the like translation of the tone into the book there was just like some misunderstandings about like very basic things about what the show was about no one wanted to see angela haggard it was at the theater that this tony's is at the mark ellinger apparently it was just a way too big of a space for this show which is kind of has like a very small heart to it it's i think suited for like a more intimate space I also think that like another big problem with it too is in the Jerry Herman uh, biography, they said that like he w literally can't say no to anyone. So everyone <laughs> kept coming with it up to him because it was kind of his like a pet project of his like he had been in um, actually the straight play when he was in college playing the deaf mute role. Um, and it was like a, uh, you know, a show that was near and dear to his heart. And he actually someone else had the rights to it and um, and had already written the score, which would be interesting to hear. But um, yeah, do you he, know who that was? I think Richard Wilbur, who wrote some of the lyrics for Candide, had it. He at the time, you know, he had Dolly and Mame running and he could really just do whatever he wanted to do. I thought Ethan Morden has a pretty good sort of summary on why it didn't work in his book. His sort of thesis on his 60s book is that the 60s were the year of the, quote, big lady show, um, <laughs> which, you know, Mame obviously is a prime example, you know, Hello Dolly, Funny Girl, 
etc. Dear World's big lady formula was its undoing. All Broadway had been ready to enjoy the work, the encore to Mame with the added intellectual glamour of a modern French classic. But the authors did what Rodgers and Hammerstein had warned authors never to do. They shoved the material into a pre-existing genre. Mame as a bag lady. Dolly saves the world. The book used a lot of Giraudot, yet it didn't know what to do when his tone clashed with big lady convention. The play was not adapted, but mashed, even contaminated, especially when Peter Glenville replaced director Lucia Victor, and then Joe Layton replaced both Glenville and choreographer Donald Sadler out of town. Layton knew how a hit musical worked, but he didn't know how Giraudot worked, at least not Giraudot as big Broadway. A trimming of the original play's text with a few embellishing songs might have succeeded, adding, say, the accordion, but not all those big number dancers. Leighton, blah, blah, blah. What is not perfect source material is a witty and ironically pirouetting historical document by a Frenchman punctuating the German surrender with a slap in those fucking Nazi faces. That is the beginning of a bad idea musical. (laughs) I don't know if there's a ton more to say, you know, if you haven't listened to the score, then you should. Is there anything? Are you looking for the Jerry Herman? uh... Two things I want to say is that, yeah, if you haven't listened to it, listen to it, especially I feel like my favorite number and kind of like Jerry Herman working at his most experimental is the tea party. We are not alone here. There are other minds here. Moliere and Keats are enraged and engaged in a row. Listen to the lovely language, all the lessons Voltaire ever taught. And all the thoughts that Buddha ever thought are right here in this air, in this house, in this room with us now. Where is Voltaire? What is he doing? Playing with Dicky, no doubt. Speak, Dicky, speak voices. Speak, Voltaire. Yeah, you uh, you really you turned me onto that one. That was a good a good wreck. I think that in a lot of ways this is Jerry Herman's merrily, and that I think he's just like gone back to it and really tried to make it work. And you know, it, I think it's a good enough score. I just think that I don't know. It's just like how do you move forward? Well, the answer is uh, what is it called? The casual fall yeah. in fifteen years. <laughs> No longer lovely if laughter is No longer lilting if lovers are No longer loving that I don't want to know if summer is No longer carefree if children are No longer singing if people are No longer happy that I don't want to know Let me hide every truth from my eyes with a In a world full of lies With my head in the sand For my memories All are exciting My memories All are enchanted My memories Burning my head In a steady glow So if my friends If love is dead Um, okay, so then we had a couple other short-lived musicals. There was a Canterbury Tales musical that closed after 121 performances that was nominated for Best Choreography and won for Best Costume Design. 
And uh, you said you uh, enjoyed Yeah, the, the recording's really fun. And I think you could see how like a young Andrew Lloyd Webber would be um, influenced by it. Also, it was a huge hit in the UK. Um, and apparently it just didn't transfer over well. I mean, it's very, it feels almost academic in it. And I feel like probably the British have a different relationship to Canterbury Tales than we do. I think the most interesting thing about it is Frank Lesser's production company. Uh, Frank Productions was one of the producers. But check out the cast recording. Um, and then we have The Fig Leaves Are Falling, which was a four-performance flop directed by George Abbott. And the lone nomination was for Dorothy Loudon for Best Performance by a Leading Actress in a Musical. You <laughs> dove deeper into these flop scores than I did. Yeah, there's like a studio cast recording. It's I feel like it's kind of like a more similar, it feels a little more similar to maybe uh, uh, Promises, Promises. Um, it's kind of like a contemporary score, but I mean, it's a little uh, tired thing of like an older, a man leaves his wife for a younger woman and then like realizes that the young people are crazy. Mm. Um, yeah. So I'm assuming Dorothy Loudon was his original wife? Yes. <laughs> I think the young woman was played by Jill O'Hara's sister, Jenny. Oh, right. You said that. So then, just got to keep moving. So then we had Maggie Flynn. So that was an 82 performance flop that had one nomination for Best Performance by a Leading Actor in a Musical for Jack Cassidy. Did you come up with anything fun for that one? Um, a few fun things is that Shirley Jones and Jack Cassidy, who are the Partridge family parents, um, were the stars of it. Apparently, it was like kind of, it's based on the Civil War draft riots, and like uh, people have kind of like described it as like a Civil War sound of music vibe. Um, and, but I think it was like a little offensive. It was like described as blackface sound of music. Oh, um, no. <laughs> that's um, the worst description of anything I've <laughs> Yeah, but um, it's funny because, like, there is a, fro- a flop that we're not even going to mention um, about a an- Antony and Cleopatra musical called Her First Roman. Um, that was the first. This was the second musical to open of the season, and the first was Her First Roman. And all the critics, two critics actually made the same joke in their review, being like, this is the best musical since Her First Roman, like joking about how they both kind of suck. Um, oh, good. But there That's is. It's like how Bye Bye Birdie was the punching bag uh, in the, you know, 2009, 2010 yes. season. <laughs> totally. Um, and um, there's a recording of this that I have not listened to, but I think it has some following to it so then now we got tim's play corner i know i'm pretty exhausted <laughs> after um this but i mean it was a pretty uh, it's a pretty easy to sum up year in plays we actually get two play performances at the tonys we get the great white hope which won best play best performance by a leading actor in a play for james earl jones and best featured actress uh for jane alexander um and it's sort of here's a quick synopsis Um, Jack Jefferson is the boxing heavyweight champion of the early 1910s in America, but as a black man, he's not only fighting other boxers, but discrimination and prejudice as well. The boxing fans and press resent the idea of a black champion and are actively searching for a great white hope that can defeat him. But it's Jefferson's activities outside the ring, primarily his relationship involving the white Eleanor Bachman, that proved that may prove to be his downfall. So I guess it's kind of like billed as like a modern Othello retelling. And just to give James Earl Jones a little shout out, here's a little excerpt from um, the review. 
The acting is dominated by James Earl Jones, who is magnificent as Jefferson. With head shaved, burly, huge, Mr. Jones stalks through the play like a black, avenging angel. Even when corrupted by misery, his presence has an almost moral force to it, and his voice rasps out of agony nearly too personally painful in its nakedness. This was magnificent, and at the end, when he comes on stage, bloody and battered like a torn gladiator, he can still achieve a broken pose of glory that becomes immeasurably moving. One more question. Uh, go ahead. You're the first black man in the history of the ring to get a crack at the heavyweight title. Now, the white folks, of course, are behind the white hope. Brady's the redeemer of the race and so on, but uh, you, Jack Jefferson, are you the black hope? Well, I'm black and I'm hoping. Jack. <laughs> Jack, get it to him straight. Hey, look, man, I ain't, I ain't running for Congress. I ain't fighting for no race. I ain't redeeming nobody. My mama told me Mr. Lincoln done that. Ain't that why you shot him? Uh, yeah, well, tell it. And it's funny, like, watching these ceremonies, especially things like the plays that I don't really know about, you can sort of tell which ones are sort of like the audience favorites. And you, everyone was losing their mind over this play, and especially over James Earl Jones. Lauren Bacall, I believe, announced his win, and she was very excited for him. He got, like, I think the longest ovation of the night. And the winner is... James Earl Jones! Accepting this award uh, represents, I suppose, accepting um, recognition by others of one's talent and worth. I can accept that recognition. I can accept that recognition without mentioning all the people who helped to make it possible. I I had a note, it's been a little bit since I've watched the ceremony by the time we're recording this, but this is sort of an interesting hybrid year where like some people were giving like very short speeches like we saw in the first Tonys and some are giving longer speeches and um, I believe James Earl Jones is on the long side, the longer side. Um, and I guess the other play that performed that night was Lovers, which is actually like two kind of one act plays that are called Winners and Losers by Brian Friel. And it was nominated for Best Play, Best Leading Actor for Art Carney and Best Featured Actress by Anna Monahan. Um, and it didn't win any of those awards. Um, and it's actually sort of interesting because when it was revived in the past 20 years, I, I think it's been sort of repraised as like a great British play but at the time people were like eh, this is kind of like a B plus <laughs> content but like it's good but like it's nothing that innovative well one thing I thought was kind of interesting was that Anna Manahan was in it who later appeared in the Beauty Queen of Lanan which this seemed this play seemed kind of similar like it seemed like they were trying to like hook up while her mother was upstairs which is also sort of the theme of uh of that play yeah I think that so it's like they're pregnant out of wedlock, but they're like trying not to get anyone to know. Yeah, and then losers is what um, you're referring to. Um, yeah, it's like middle age. It's yeah, it's basically the plot of that play. Yeah, just to kind of round it out, we have Hadrian the Seventh, which won best direction of a play for Peter Dews. Um, this is um, 
Kind of interesting. It's kind of about like a crazy priest, but that was very popular. It was written by Peter Luke based on a popular, I guess, work of fiction called Hadrian the Seventh. And then best performance by a leading actress in a play went to Julie Harris, one of her many Tonys, um, <laughs> for 40 Carats, which was kind of this classic older woman falls in love with a younger man in Europe story. It was directed You'll by... you love to see it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it was directed by Abe Burroughs, and it ran for a pretty long time, and June Allison filled in the ro- role of Joan Fontaine and Zsa Zsa Gabor. And um, best performance by a featured actor in a play went to Al Pacino, um, yeah. who's pretty unknown at this time for Does a Tiger Wear a Necktie? The winner is Al Pacino. <laughs> Don't drop it out. Huh? Uh, I'd like to thank Jay Weston, Philip Rose, producers, Michael Schultz, a great director, and Don Peterson, the author of The Zatagaway Necktie, and all of you. Thank you. It's a great honor. Thank you. Which I have to say sounds like a fake play title. I like know. if you were <laughs> you were coming up with the name for like a fake play from the sixties. And its plot also sounds like a fake plot from a play of the sixties. It just is like a very of the moment. The story is a racially charged drama about teen drug addicts at a rehabilitation center located on an island in a river bordering a large industrial city. And in the review, Jack Kroll in Newsweek um, said that Pacino had the choreography of a hood with a poetic soul. So <laughs> And I think he was in his 20s still here, yeah. unlike those liars from hair. <laughs> and he went on to have a good 70s, so... Yeah, maybe you've heard of him. So, yeah, that's kind of the sum of it. Yeah, I feel like there was so much going on in the musicals, it's kind of... But I think that there was some good fare. I think, actually, Hadrian the Seventh was what I would probably be most curious about seeing. Um, should we do some bits and pieces? I have some stuff about the ceremony that I think is neither here nor there. Yeah, let's do it. So the first thing I loved is that when Gwen Verdon came out to present choreography, she references Bob Fosse, but she just calls him my husband. (laughs) You know, of all the creative people involved in making a musical successful, the choreographer is by far the most underrated, overlooked, and underpaid. (laughs) I don't really believe that, but my husband's a choreographer, and he told me to say it. I thought there were a lot of great um, options for Dream Threesome. An early contender was Leslie Uggams and Robert Morris, but I was shocked by the weird, like, flirty chemistry between Pearl Bailey and Robert Preston. Well, Pearlie, as long as we've been in this business together and as long as we've known each other, you realize this is the first time we've ever worked together? You know, Bob, I've had my eye on you. <laughs> that marvelous red uniform in Northwest Mounted Police. Or was it, wait, no, wait, wait. No, 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 I'm all mistaken here. It was, was it when you were the understudy for Nelson Eddy? When, when was <laughs> Well, I have watched you in Arms of the Man yeah, yeah. and St. Louis Woman. Yes. But just think, bro, all of those blockbusters were just a warm-up for this moment here tonight. And now, oh, now, Robert, here we are together at last. Together. They were definitely vibing. So yeah, that would be my choice because it seems like they probably did do it. Uh. (laughs) Okay, now I understand my note. I think I was making a note that if I could mix and match, I would choose Pearl Bailey and Robert Goulet. Mm, 
can't mix and match. That's the that's the policy of Dream Threesome. The Tonys have to choose it for you. But so, but in that case, then my other one is actually um, one that I expected to. I um, didn't really expect to be so turned on by. But Compton, Compton and Green had very interesting energy this year. Okay, can I also say something else? I noted was that the two of them were introduced as a harmonious partnership of music and lyrics, but they're both lyricists. One of the most successful marriages of words and music in the theatrical world has been the team of Betty Comden and Adolph Green. Which I've always like, you know, I obviously they're legends, but it's always like, really? You need both of you just to write the lyrics? <laughs> like, come on, guys. I mean, I know they did book too, but um, all right. I think that's fair. And yeah. another runner up that I liked was Lauren Bacall and Jack Lemmon. Oh, pair. yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought all of the like special Tonys they gave were very fun. I thought Leonard Bernstein looked so foxy, and he was also like, why am I here? <laughs> I must say it's a rather curious sensation to be handed a Tony Award for having contributed precisely nothing to the Broadway musical scene for almost 12 years. But uh, who am I to quibble? But what I thought was interesting is that because I was also like, why is he here? But he had never won a Tony until then, unless you count Wonderful Town, because that was back when there was like no best score Tony. And then and the creative team would just win when it won best musical. So oh, they were like, we got to give him one. Yeah, yeah, I guess I didn't realize that. I feel like there were a lot of like annoying, uncomfortable jokes about nudity. <laughs> I also liked, by the way, have we seen Ethel Merman much? No, but apparently this was a really tough year for her because her daughter, Ethel Jr., had um, committed suicide, I think. Oh, no. Yeah. Jesus. Uh, because actually she and Donna McKechnie were in a touring production of Call Me Madam when she got cast in Promises, Promises. Yeesh. Yeah. Sorry to bring down the mood. No, I mean, my one other note about that is that she got two. She got a double musical intro. She got Annie Get Your Gun and Everything's Coming Up Roses, which is real. Some real legends only shit. Aww. I think that's everything. I'm feeling good. Me too. This has been an extremely long episode. I'm going to have to. Maybe this is what the people want after, you know, we've been gone for so long. Yeah. They want a super deep dive. I, I got to look at what we're doing next. I forgot. Coming up next. We are going to be doing 1990, oh. which, yeah. So that's uh, City of Angels, Aspects of Love, Grand Hotel, Meet Me in St. Louis. That's going to be an easy year. Tyne Daily Gypsy. Tyne Daily Gypsy. We got the Sweeney Todd. Uh, is that the Circle in the Square revival? Yeah. So that one's going to be a little less strenuous for all of us. <laughs> <laughs> all of us on the My Little Tony's team. So you can... Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at My Little Tonys. You can email us at mylittletoniespodcast at gmail.com. And that's it, yeah. I think. Also, no one can see this, but I just want to call out that the sun is coming through my window at a very nice angle and reflecting off my computer screen, and I'm very well lit right now. Yeah, you look beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> I was noticing it slowly, uh, slowly approaching <laughs> over the course of recording this. All right. Well, okay. we'll see you next time. Bye, y'all. <laughs> Bye. The party's over. It's time to call it a day. It's over. And I, I can hardly wait until next year. Yes. Well, you know, things are changing. The new theater buildings themselves are different. The very architecture is bringing audiences and performers closer together. The form of entertainment presented is changing. Influence, I'm sure, as change always is, by young people. 
The effects of shows like Hair, for instance, are just beginning to be felt. Next year, the Tony Awards will be presented entirely new. Your hosts will be Phyllis Diller and Tiny Tim. Thank you for being so very nice. Congratulations. And here he is, Corey. Good night. Good night.